Well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and uh, flip to Romans with us. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be. We are going to finish up a series that we have been in uh, since Easter called Resurrection Matters. Uh, and so we'll finish that up this morning. A couple announcements, though, as we get started. We will be having baptisms on June 2nd, okay? Uh, so on June 2nd, we'll be having a kind of baptism service up here at the church. So if you have never been baptized and you would like to be baptized, if you'd like to take that step of faith, uh, please come talk to myself or one of the elders, and we will get you on uh, the schedule for June 2nd. Um, so just put that on your calendar, make plans to come and uh, celebrate with us. Always one of our favorite services here at FC Cube um, as we uh, get to just celebrate the life that God is giving to people and, and is still pouring out in people's lives. Um, so June 2nd, baptism service. And then next week, uh, we will start a new five-week series on our core values and on our mission statement here at the church, okay? Uh, so make plans for that. We'll spend five weeks walking through our four core values, our mission statement. I felt that was appropriate, okay? Uh, just kind of where we are as a church. We're bringing on a new staff member, uh, Mr. West Pogue, uh, as our youth pastor, okay? And so just kind of ground ourselves again in who we are, what we want to be, where we want to go, and, and kind of how we want to get there. And then after those five weeks, we're going to start our next book study, Okay, and so our last one was Acts. It took about four or five years. Uh, we're going to try to do it a little bit shorter here. Um, but we're going to start the book of Daniel, okay? Uh, that's kind of where we're headed. It'll be a fun book. Daniel is like the best of all worlds, all right? It's got like the cute stories, like vegetal material, right? And then it's got like this apocalyptic, end of the world, awesome uh, kind of language. So you kind of get a little bit of everything in Daniel. So we'll start Daniel up this summer uh, in about five or six weeks. Looking forward to that. All right, so we're going to wrap, wrap up our our series on the resurrection um, and, and how Jesus' resurrection matters, okay? One of the things we've noticed is that too often in the church we have emphasized the cross, maybe to the exclusion of the resurrection. And so we're really good at being cross people, right? Jesus died for our sins. And you could, if you're careful, I mean, you could even probably listen to a gospel presentation where it starts and ends with the cross. And that's really all you need to know to be a Christian is you need to accept Jesus' death on your behalf. And there's really not a whole lot about the resurrection or what that means or why that matters for your life, for the world. And so we've been kind of teasing out a few of the ways that the resurrection matters. Um, some of the reasons that Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection from the grave matters to you and I, uh, and as we'll see this morning, to the world around us. Um, so this morning will be a little similar to last week in that it will require a little bit of thinking. Okay, uh, This is kind of one of the distinctives, I think, of FC Cubed is that uh, we're kind of committed to really exploring um, the ideas here in the scripture, uh, even if they require a little bit of, of deep thinking, if they require a little bit of, of questioning, okay? Um, we, we don't just ever want to assume that we all know what we believe and just talk about a few ways that we can live that out better, but we want to explore the scriptures and test them up against our ideas. Um, and so last week we talked, if you remember, about um, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of our bodies, okay? That, that what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday is going to be what happens to you and I, according to the scriptures. And we looked at just text after text, right, about how this is kind of the biblical hope, okay? Um, now this morning, it'll tie in a little bit to what we talked about last week, but, but it's going to get a little bit wider, okay? So here's where we're going this morning. What happened to Jesus, one of the, one of the ways that Jesus' resurrection matters is because what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday will be what happens to the entire world when Jesus returns. I'll say that again. What happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday, when he rises from the dead, when he resurrects, will be what happens to the entire world, the cosmos, when Jesus returns. We mentioned last week that, that Jesus' resurrection is in a sense like a script for you and I. It's our future, it's our destiny, it's a preview of coming attractions. Well, we'll see the scriptures take a step back, and they also say Jesus' resurrection is a script it's a preview of what will happen, again, to the entire world 
when he returns, okay, when, when you and I are revealed to be his son. So we're going to pick this up in Romans chapter 8, all right? We'll see this theme here. Romans chapter 8, we'll start in verse 18. Very, very important passage, one of the most popular chapters probably in the Bible. But people actually, I mean, it's real creative. They kind of skip over the section here in Romans 8 uh, because it's a little confusing. It's a little unusual to us. And so we really like the first verse, and we really like the last couple verses of this paragraph. But we often don't know what to do kind of with what's in the middle there. But that's what we'll look at this morning. So Romans 8, we'll pick up in verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What a great, I mean, what a great promise. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. He says, verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's this idea here that Paul inserts, again, it's kind of weird to us, but that all of creation, okay, this is the word, all of creation, trees and the stars and the sun and grass and the ground and wolves and birds and snails, all of creation has this kind of expectation. They're kind of on tiptoe. And they're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, for you and I to come forth as what we are meant to come forth as. So um, they're waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope, verse 21, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you'll notice this kind of fits in with the song we just sang. Um, That's one of our uh, songs from our last album here at the church. But creation is groaning, right? Creation is groaning. They're waiting with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, what Paul's drawing on here is this kind of Jewish kind of mystical belief that that there's an intimate connection between creation and between humanity. That humanity and what happens to them and how they act influences in in a severe and dramatic way what happens to in the experience of all of creation. So think back to Genesis chapter 1, okay? When God creates everything. Remember, we, we talked about this last week. He creates physical stuff. He creates humans. He creates the earth. He creates all that. And he says it is very good. good. Yeah, it's very good, right? God's kind of proud of himself. This is a cool idea. Okay, this is all really, really good. There's this affirmation of the physical world um, in, in Genesis as God creates everything. And you'll remember when he creates humankind, he gives them a task. He gives them a vocation. Humans are kind of the pinnacle of God's creation he gives them a task and the task is to go subdue the world to have dominion in a sense to be like kings of the earth to be rulers to be like vice regents and and this is kind of what it means to be the image of god to be image bearers um so ancient near eastern kings would build statues and call them images of themselves and it would enforce their rule in parts of the empire where they couldn't be and in a sense that's kind of what humanity is we are supposed to bring God's loving and wise rule to creation. And in Genesis 2, God creates this garden, and he puts humankind in it. And he tells them, 2.15, to keep it and to cultivate it, to take care of the garden. And then the implication is to expand the garden. The idea is almost that there's like a wilderness around. I mean, it's really interesting. Not a lot of people work this out in Genesis 2, but, but the garden's only one <coughs> small area on the earth. And the humans are given this task, and the task seems to imply that they're going to go forth and make the whole earth the garden. They're going to cultivate. They're going to subdue it. They're going to be stewards of God's creation. God creates all these things, and then he entrusts it to humans. He says, you take care of this. You bring my wise rulership to creation. You take care of it. I've got a quote. Christopher Wright says this. says, the garden in Eden was not the whole planet. It was a safe and bounded environment within the earth, into which God put the first humans. 
The implications of this limited location of Eden and the placing of humans initially within it would seem to be that the task of subduing the earth would begin there and would extend outwards into a world as yet far from subdued. We were created to be rulers. We were created to subdue the earth. Now, what's interesting is, it's not going to be long, right? Genesis 3, when humanity falls. And again, here's what Paul's getting at. When we fall, in a sense, creation itself falls. I mean, if you go read Genesis 3 again, the ground receives a curse. You remember this? When, when humans fall, the ground itself gets cursed by God. It experiences this kind of, um, Paul calls it here, a, a captivity to bondage and to decay. It feels the weight of sin. It feels the weight of things not being the way that they're supposed to be. And when humans fall, um, uh, creation itself falls. And, and what's interesting is humans have this, again, we're given this task to rule. But what happens at the fall is humans lose the ability to rule. We lose the competency. We lose the character to rule, right? Instead of bringing God's loving and wise order to the rest of the world, we often bring our selfish and evil order and rule to the rest of the world. But, so we lose the competency, but then watch this. We don't lose the desire, right? I mean, we still have it within us. We still want to rule over things, right? We know that that's kind of a part of who we were made to be. We just no longer have the character to do that in the way we we're supposed to do it. And then what happens throughout human history is we start ruling the one thing we were never supposed to rule, which is other people, right? I mean, we're supposed to take care and rule over creation and the animals, and instead we lose that, right? We lose the competency and we start trying to rule other people. So what you've got is you've got a bunch of incompetent people trying to rule over other people. We call that politics, right? Okay, I mean, this is, this is kind of the reality of, of the situation here, right? We were created to be rulers. We were created to be vice regents, viceroys, and, and, and we fell. And with that fall, Paul's saying, all of creation fell. I mean, just imagine um, you as a leader, okay? If you're the leader of a company or a business or a group of people, and if you make irresponsible choices, think of the effects that that has on other people under your authority. Yeah, often we think our sin only really affects us. But biblically, it's, it's, it's far-reaching. Not only does it affect other people, but it, it affects even creation itself. And so you have this, this idea. Again, it's kind of odd to us, but the creation, this kind of personified creation, is longing for something to change. They feel the weight of what's gone wrong with the world. We'll keep reading verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, like we, like we just sang. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Again, we talked about this last week, right? We're not awaiting our souls to be sucked off into heaven. We're awaiting our bodies to be redeemed. And what Paul does is he puts that hope, the hope of resurrection, as a smaller subset, as a small part of a larger hope for all of creation to be released from bondage to decay and corruption. I mean, we've talked about this uh, over and over again here at FC Cube. Death enters into the world, and God doesn't just come up with a plan B. He defeats death. He, he undoes it. He overturns it. And so God's not content with, with death coming into creation and causing it to decay and corrupt. He's not content with just saying, well, let's just destroy it and figure out another plan. No, God's going to undo it, again, much like he undid death in Jesus' life. Jesus was dead, and, and then he was alive again. Not only the creation, but we ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, 
we wait for it with patience. So there's kind of two images being used here for creation. The first is Exodus, the Exodus, Exodus language, all right? Um, just as God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God worked powerfully to free them, now Paul's saying creation is in slavery, it's in bondage to death, to decay, to corruption because of the subjection it was put under, because its rulers fell from where they were supposed to, to be and how they were supposed to act. It's, it's in bondage, and it's waiting to be freed, this powerful act of freedom, to be freed from decay and corruption. The second kind of language that's used here is, is of new birth. It's birthing imagery. It's groaning like in the pains of, of childbirth. Now, I've never given birth, okay? But I've heard it's not on the top five list of pleasurable things to do, um, just as far as the pain factor goes. Um, I, I'm aware of this, though, and this is very interesting. I'm aware that hearing a scream in the maternity ward like hearing this blood-curdling scream in the maternity ward is much different from hearing that scream in a, like a terminal ward or in a nursing home. Does that make sense? I mean, it's the same kind of scream of pain and agony, but it's, it's much different. One is leading to life, and the other is leading to, to death. And Paul's saying, when he looks out and sees the weight of what's gone wrong with the world, I mean, just think... Just, uh, I, I, the, I've been, are you all familiar with the movie The Impossible? Anybody? No? Okay, well, there's a movie that just came out, uh, and I just saw it, uh, on the tsunami from a few years ago, right? Very graphic. I mean, what it would look like if a huge wall of water just came out of nowhere and just destroyed everything. I mean, Paul's looking at that and going, there's something wrong with creation. God didn't intend... Right? He didn't create things and say, in my plan, right, how I want the world to be for forever, there's going to be these huge tsunamis that come in and kill just cities of people. He's saying, no, that's, it's groaning. It's not supposed to be like that. But Paul interprets it in a hopeful way. When he sees those pains, when he feels that weight, he says, it's like the pains of someone giving birth. Life's about to come through. Creation's about to be freed. It's about to be redeemed. It's about to be transformed. We often talk about you and I being born again. Right, John 3, um, when we accept Christ and we follow him, we're born again. Well, there's also this hope here that creation itself will be born again. I mean, they're, they're going to experience this new birth, this, this kind of new creation. Now, this is a much different kind of picture um, than, I think, kind of the classic way of viewing the Christian hope, where, where we just kind of, our disembodied souls go off to heaven, and it's kind of, we kind of leave the earth alone. The earth does what the earth wants to do. Okay, maybe it gets destroyed. Maybe we just forget it and leave it. Okay, but this is a picture of God wanting to free creation itself from what's gone wrong in it. God wanting not to destroy it, but to transform it. And he says, Christians waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, because that's when, when God's people finally start to do what they're supposed to do, rule creation wisely, that's when creation will receive new life. I mean, creation is not groaning for the sons of God to be revealed because then that's when it will finally get destroyed, right? Yeah, when Jesus comes back and this all goes up in fire, that's what we're waiting for, eagerly waiting for. No, it's waiting for human beings who will be transformed and will be able to bring the wise stewardship to creation that they're always meant to be, that they're always meant to to bring. Creation's waiting for you and I to be revealed, um, to take our proper role as those who bring God's love uh, to creation. I don't know if you caught the story a few years ago, but there was a, a special needs classroom 
And kids' special needs have kind of a special place in my heart. And, and what had happened in this room was the teacher of the classroom had kind of gotten out of control and was kind of bullying these, these kids with special needs. Uh, and so they can't talk, they can't defend themselves or tell the teacher or anything like that. But they were having these problems. They were acting out, they were emotionally disturbed, and, and parents were kind of like, what's going on? I mean, what's happening in that classroom? And so a parent sent their little boy in with like a wire to record what was going on, and it was just it was horrific. I mean, this adult man is screaming at them, cussing them out, yelling at them, um, telling them they're worthless, they'll never amount to anything, no one loves them. And these kids, they can't talk back, they can't defend themselves, they can't tell. I mean, they're just crying and yelling out and hitting things. And I mean, it's just this, this crazy, absurd situation. And so the school removes him as the teacher, and they bring in this like stud all-star special ed teacher, right? And she completely transforms the classroom and creates this loving gracious environment. And as I was kind of reading that story a couple years ago, I thought, that's Romans 8. And that's exactly what Romans 8 is all about. So, so this situation that's been created, a classroom, right, with desks and chairs and pencils and whiteboards and all these things, it's gone bad. It's gone really bad. And the reason it's gone bad is because the people who are in charge, the teacher, has brought in evil. But watch, the, the school's plan was not to say, you know what, a classroom was a bad idea in the beginning. Right? This whole thing was bad. We shouldn't have had the desk. We shouldn't have had the room. The kids shouldn't be here. Let's just take them all away. Let's shut the whole thing down. Let's take the kids away into these individual like pad little rooms. Okay? No, they said, what we need to do is just transform the classroom. We need to bring in someone who can rule wisely, who can lead with wisdom and love and sacrifice. And they brought in a new teacher. And she made the classroom where it was supposed to be, this place of love and joy and trust and community. And that's kind of the, the, the scene that Paul's painting here. Creation's gone wrong, but, but God's reaction to that is not just destroy the whole thing and to say, you know what, plan B. His reaction is to say, all right, we need to fix it from the top down here. Humankind, they were the ones who were supposed to take care of creation. They've messed up. They need to be transformed, redeemed, restored. And creation, right now, Paul would say, all of creation, I mean, we don't have eyes to really see this. We don't, we don't think in this way, but Paul would say, right now, everything is groaning and waiting for you and I to be revealed. For the sons and daughters of God to take their rightful place in creation and to bring God's wise and loving rule to the world. Again, just it's a much different, it's a more earthly, a more physical view of salvation and of redemption, okay? Um, so last week I had a, a kind of an old school gospel hymn that we kind of played the foil with. Uh, so I'll fly away. You remember that one? I'll fly away. Well, are you familiar with This World Is Not My Home? Anybody? This World Is Not My Home? No? Okay, well, here's the, here's the, the hymn. I guess I'll sing it for you since you don't know it. Uh, I'll just read a couple of verses. Listen to this. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just up in glory land will live eternally. The saints on every hand are shouting victory. Their song of sweet and praise drifts back from heaven's shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you in heaven's if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, there's something about that that feels right, right? Amen. Oh, the good old gospel shit, right? And there's something about it that speaks to this feeling, I think, that we all have of, of 
this desire for transcendence, right? Because we know something's not right here. We don't feel at home here. I mean, we feel like we're out of place here. Things are just so wrong. But what we'll see is, is the biblical hope is not for us to leave here. It's just for here to, to be transformed and redeemed. Does that make sense? I mean, to be, to be fixed, to be rescued, to be saved. God put us here. This is our home. And, and we're not just, just wasting time here until we leave and go find a new home. This is our home, and as we'll see, this is going to be our home. God's going to redeem it. He's going to transform it. He's going to renew it. And so throughout the scriptures, there's this, this hope, this promise of what we call new creation, okay? Of heaven and earth being made new, being transformed, not being destroyed and gotten rid of, but being redeemed. So flip with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah uh, chapter 65 is a, a kind of a classic Old Testament passage on this hope of new creation. Isaiah 65, we'll pick it up in verse 17. Isaiah says this, he uh, is prophesying, this is God talking, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I'll answer. I love that. While they are speaking, I'll hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So notice new heaven and a new earth. But it's a, it's a transformed heaven and earth, right? It's, it's not like the earth that we're used to. So this is kind of the, the trouble we get when we use language like end of the world. Again, the biblical hope is never for the end of the world, as if space and time and matter are going to just be destroyed and done away with. The biblical hope is the end of the world as we know it. This, this large sense of discontinuity, because we're used to the lion devouring the lamb. And we're used to infants being born to calamity. And we're used to planting and not eating and building houses and not inhabiting. But in the world that God is going to create in this new heaven and this new earth, it's going to be this transformed, ideal, perfect type of life. But notice it's not a, it's not a retreat from earth. Again, God just doesn't lose. I mean, that's just a solid idea that you can get in, right, and keep. God doesn't create things, say it's good, and then death comes in and says, oh man, it messed that up. So I guess we'll, I'll just take him to heaven, right? No, God created an earth. He thought it was good. And he wanted the humans to dwell there. And when that gets messed up, his response is not to go, let me go to plan B or C. His response is to say, um, no, thank you. I wanted this a certain way, and it's going to be that certain way. I'll create a new heaven and a new earth where things will be just the way I want them to be. Now notice, um, this kind of throws some people off here. There are still people dying on the new heaven and new earth, according to Isaiah, right? There's, they're living to be, granted, really old, but there's still some death here. Um, we'll see 
In Revelation, John takes this language up exactly, but without death, all right? In a sense, Isaiah is just kind of undershooting. He's not dreaming big enough, okay? In his picture, right, it's just idyllic world where death is just kind of seen as not really a bad, intrusive thing. John comes in and says, okay, well, you just didn't go a little far enough, right? Death itself is just no more. Just like Jesus will never die again. Death itself will, will not exist anymore. Notice, though, on the new heavens and earth, the presence of very earthly physical things. This, this doesn't seem to be symbols for some kind of like platonic spiritual existence. Notice animals. They're going to be animals. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion's going to eat. I mean, the lion's not going to be a carnivore anymore. It's going to be an herbivore. It's, again, transformed. I don't know a lot of lions like that. And I know a lot of lions, okay? But I don't know a lot of lions that eat straw like an ox. <coughs> But that's going to be there on the, the new heaven and the new earth. It's this transformed kind of idyllic existence. So that's a really popular question, right? I mean, the way it gets phrased probably, will my pet be in heaven, right? Little Bobby or Fudu, right? Or are they going to be there when we get to heaven? Well, I mean, there's a lot of questions that we don't have answered. But I think we can pretty confidently say we should expect animals. I mean, just, I mean, creation like it is, right? Now, let me say this. It's going to be healthy relationships with animals. So we've kind of gone a little far, I think, sometimes, all right? Um, I've seen some crazy things happen in families with animals, all right? So healthy boundaries on the new heaven and new earth with animals. But I think there will be this sense of caring for them, having... I mean, Adam, think about Adam. One of his friends, he names them. It's like an intimate kind of act, relationship. He goes and he names the animals. There will be animals on the new heaven and new earth. I don't know about specific pets, okay, if they'll be resurrected or, or that kind of thing. Um, I will say... Often when we get into questions like that, all it really does is serve to either frustrate us or make us sad, right? My little dog's not there. I don't want to be there, right? I mean, we just kind of get sad. <laughs> Lewis has this really good quote about how we often just, we just, we miss out on the emphasis of eternity. And so he used the example of like a little boy, someone trying to explain how sex is like the ultimate act of pleasure to a little boy who just doesn't get it, right? And he asks, well, do people who do that have chocolate? And people are like, well, no, I mean, not usually, because it's, just, it's a different thing. It's a better thing. And the, the little boy goes, well, not, that doesn't sound good at all. If I can eat chocolate, right? <laughs> and all he focuses on is that there won't be chocolate there, right? And he just doesn't have the, the ability to grasp the greater pleasure. Does that make sense? And, and Lucio, sometimes when we think about eternity, instead of expecting the fullness, we think we'll be fasting, right? All we think about is, oh, we, we won't be doing this or we won't be doing that, instead of realizing that, if we're not doing that, it's because there's something so much greater and grander. It's not like we're missing out on something. It's not like, it's not like we're, we're longing for something. But you have this, this hope for new creation, new heaven, new earth. Now, if you really look and pay careful attention to the New Testament, you're going to see this kind of cosmic understanding of Jesus' work all over the place. So in Colossians, um, Colossians chapter 1, this famous Christ hymn in cha- uh, verse 15 to 20, there's this idea that Jesus has reconciled all things to God including creation. I mean, there's just all kinds of this kind of cosmic um, language used about atonement, used about Jesus' work. God is not just reconciling humans to himself. He is, but he's reconciling the whole world back to himself. He's redeeming and transforming that which has been fallen and has gotten lost. He's making it new. Flip one last place with me to uh, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 serves as a beautiful, 21-22 serves as a beautiful kind of end to the Bible, to the New Testament, to history itself. And 
And what you'll see in Revelation 21 is it picks up pretty strongly on the imagery of Genesis 1, creation, and also Isaiah 65, new creation. And it all kind of comes rushing together in this final picture of what God's planning to do. Revelation 21, pick up in verse 1. I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now the sea in the Bible is the symbol for evil and chaos. John's not saying there's not going to be bodies of water in the new creation. I mean, if you keep reading, there's going to be rivers and things like that, right? He's just saying there's, like the tsunami, right? There's never going to be anything in creation that, that we have this fear of, that at any moment could come and, and destroy us. The sea, right? Daniel, when he sees monsters, they're rising up out of the sea. Most of the time when you see sea and, and deep waters in the, in the scriptures, it's some kind of symbol for, for destructive forces. And God is often controlling the deeps. I mean, this is all throughout the Psalms. God controls the water. And we're like, well, what is, what is that about? And it's this idea that God's sovereign even over these chaotic, destructive forces that we're not sovereign over. That sometimes come and take our lives. But in the new creation, there's none of that. Right? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. All right, again, watch. We flip the script, but the, the script's going to get flipped back for uh, the way it's supposed to be. At the end of all these things, right? At the end of all of history, when God's salvation is finally complete, is it us going to heaven or is it heaven coming to us? The heavenless city comes down as a bride, for her husband, and heaven and earth become one. This is the final answer to Jesus' prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. This is it, Revelation 21. And all of its fullness, the kingdom has arrived. God's reign and rule, the place where God dwells. We'll see this God's dwelling is with man's dwelling. Heaven comes down like a man and a woman. They're made one. This new heaven and new earth we should think of as a unified reality. It's not two things separate from each other the way they are now. It's one thing combined. And so some people, like, I don't know if you remember with Randy Alcorn. He, he wrote a book on heaven. It's like a best-selling book. And he goes pretty in-depth into this idea of new heaven, new earth. And he's got it down, all right, this kind of physical redemption. Um, but he says, let's just keep the word heaven. Let's just use the word heaven to refer to new heaven and new earth. It's kind of a mouthful, right? And that's, that's probably an acceptable thing to do. I think maybe we'd have too many assumptions, right, that heaven is this disembodied experience, um, but new heaven and new earth, as this one unified reality, is a, is a mouthful, right? I mean, I find myself saying, well, the resurrected life on the new heaven and the new earth. Which is not as, it's not as easy saying, well, we go to heaven after we die, right? Um, but new heaven, new earth, they're one. They join together like a, a bride and a husband. And I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, here we go, the dwelling place of God, which has been heaven, is now with man, which has been earth. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember back to Genesis 1, God is walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's dwelling in an intimate way with them. And then when they fall, he withdraws from creation. But even then, he sets up in his people this temple, this outpost, if you will. I plan on dwelling with my people. Here's how it will start in this temple. And the idea is the temple was always just this like, first sign of what God wanted to do which is dwell among his people. And at the end of, of the story, at the end of history, God has now again flooded creation with his presence. Heaven has come to earth. He dwells with them. He'll wipe away, verse 4, every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write these down, uh, for these words are trustworthy and true. Once again, heaven um, and earth are recreated. A new earth is made. 
Now, there's, there's a bit of a debate and discussion around what exactly this new earth will be like and how exactly it will be created. So the two kind of options are, is God going to create a new earth like out of new material, like ex nihilo, like he did the first time, right? Like just having nothing to really do with this first one, just saying, boom, here's the new earth. Or is it going to be like a transformation of the earth? Does that make di- you see the difference there? Right? Is it is just going to be a brand new creation or a transformation so that you could say it was a new thing, right? It's not like it had been in, in the old times. Um, I think, again, if you take Jesus' resurrection as your kind of example here, which Paul tells us to do, um, you see this continuity and discontinuity. When Jesus resurrected, it's still his body, right? I mean, God doesn't just create a whole new body and put Jesus in it. He takes Jesus' body, which had been dead, and he raised it from the dead. Um, you see this, I mean, he, God says this, I'm making all things new, right? He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. Do you see the difference there? He's making that which is new. He's renewing, he's resurrecting it, like he's promised uh, to do for you and I, as he did um, for Jesus. So you have this, this new creation that is made. Notice the presence of absence in the new creation. There's no death, there's no mourning, and no pain, no crying. For the former things have passed away. If you were to keep reading, it's interesting. New creation is not paradise lost. Paradise regained. Often we think of that, right? We're just going back to where we were in Genesis. Well, in Genesis, there's a garden. In Revelation, there's a city. You're, you're advancing. The Bible would not have you think that this whole interim between fall and redemption has been one huge waste of time. As if after however long it takes, right, thousands, thousands of years, we finally get to the new creation and we're right back where we started at the very beginning. And we're like, I hope we don't do that again. That was an 8,000 year diversion. In the scriptures, it's like a, almost like a coming of age story of creation. We've gone further than when we started. The end is greater than the beginning, is how people would say it. Irenaeus, this great church father um, in the second century, he would say, Jesus was going to be incarnate. He was going to become a man and come down to us, even if we hadn't have sinned. Why? Well, because we, we always had a future. We always had someone, somewhere to go and something to do. We were going to make the whole world the garden. And all that happened when we sinned is that his incarnation took on another meaning. He also was going to come and take care of our sin and the death we had brought into the world. But there was always this plan to take us forward. Creation is like a project in Genesis 1. It's not this static uh, a timeless thing that's never going to change this perfect paradise there's a job to do there's a future for it and what you see in Revelation is that future is fulfilled and, and then if you were keep reading you see that you and I are told we're going to be reigning with Christ on the new earth again restored to the role we had in Genesis 1 again just a much different picture than sitting on clouds playing harps okay in heaven um, but this idea that we have tasks to do we're responsible for things there are going to be these adventures, these things for us to do as we reign with Christ on the new heaven and the new earth. This, this idea of new creation. What happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday in, in this real sense, this powerful sense is going to happen to the whole world as it's made new, as it is released from its bondage to death and corruption. And you have this much more robust, much more life-affirming, physical-affirming hope, I think, presented to us here in the scriptures. Okay, so... Who cares? Right? Again, kind of what we, we asked at the, the end of this with the resurrection of the dead. What difference does this make, right? I mean, what's, what actual difference does it make between thinking we'll go to heaven after we die and the earth will be destroyed versus thinking that 
earth is going to be recreated, new heaven, new earth. What's, what's the big deal here, okay? Well, well, I've got three here for us, all right? Three, three Christian responses to the hope of new creation. Here's the first one. Creation care. Creation care. You and I are called to care for God's creation. We're called to take care of it, to be wise stewards. And watch this. It goes both ways. We're called to fulfill the task we were given in Genesis 1 and the task that we will be given again fully at the end. This is who we're supposed to be, people who take care of God's world. Um, So the kind of questions I think that this kind of hope would call you to ask yourself would be, how does my lifestyle, my purchasing, my lifestyle, my habits, how does my lifestyle affect the world and affect animals? How does my lifestyle affect the world and affect animals? Now, one of the unfortunate things we've done uh, in really in the Western world, particularly in America, is we have politicized issues. So what that means is we can't really talk about individual issues. We split everything up into left or right. And it's just a wholesale thing. So the moment you bring up this, it's on the left, right? And the only way you can ever do that is if you take all these other things, right? And if you want to do this and this and this, that's the only way you can believe this. You can't possibly sit down and go issue by issue, right? And just think responsibly and have an open discussion about certain things. Um, so I know some of my more conservative friends are going to immediately tensing up going, oh, here we go, liberal. All right. Here we go. Right. Socialism. You want us to do what? Take care of creation? Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Right. Well, I mean, just breathe. Okay. But I think this is the call that you seek pretty consistently throughout the scriptures. And I think maybe if, 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 if we have gone away from that, maybe we need to start thinking through some of the things, some of the assumptions that we bring to our lives. Oftentimes, this idea that the world will be destroyed serves as an excuse for you and I to kind of rape and pillage and do whatever we want to do with the world. I mean, it, it really does. People use that, right? I mean, why would you rearrange the furniture on a sinking ship? This is going to be destroyed. I mean, this is all going to be gone away with. Let's just do what we need to do with it. Let's not think about long-term consequences. Let's not think about any kind of responsibility that we might have other than to meet our own kind of selfish, capitalistic needs, right? That's that's just kind of how we've kind of gone about things. Um, I do think, though, we should be responsible for creation, which includes the environment, natural resources, those kind of things, and also for the animal kingdom, for the animal world. Again, I'm not saying to vote Democrat, all right, at the next election. I'm just saying to understand... What God desires from humanity. God creates these things. He thinks they're good. And he says, I trust you with them. I trust you with them. So again, I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of climate change or global warming. Okay, those kind of things. Maybe it's a big hoax. Maybe we're destroying the world, okay, with how we burn fossil fuels. I would think, knowing, knowing who we have in the room, we have people on both sides of this, right? I would say um, evangelicals are starting to pretty much come around uh, with this idea of climate change. I'm not a scientist. I don't know the science. All right? I'm not interested in debating it um, or arguing for it or against it or anything like that. Um, again, the theological foundation, I think, is firm. We're supposed to take care of creation, whether we're doing that well or not doing that well. I tell you, in about 2004, 2005, um, the Evangelical Climate Initiative came out with a, a document called Climate Change, an Evangelical Call to Action. It was signed by the president of the National Evangelical Association, has a list of about 200 or so um, high-up evangelical leaders in the world. So this is not, again, I'm just trying to say, this is not a liberal issue, right? I and mean, this is not a democratic socialist thing. Evangelical Bible-committed Christians are coming around in, in, in big waves to saying, we need to wake up, and we need to think carefully about how the choices we're making are infecting the environment. 
Um, for lots of reasons, one of which is because the poor are affected drastically by certain decisions we make uh, about how we will use resources and, and, and those kind of things. Um, so I, I saw an internet meme this week that said, it was WWJD, what would Jesus drive? I was like, oh, no, no. No, 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 no. Don't take my car, Jesus. Uh. If, all I know is a smart car is not holy, okay? That is, a, that is a travesty to God's creation. You will not put me in a smart car. But, but this is maybe the kind of thinking, right? I'm not saying get rid of the truck, but the question is, how is our lifestyle affecting, affecting the world, all right? There's a good website, creationcare.org, uh, which was recommended to me. I've explored a little bit. Lots of good resources, um, different questions to ask yourself. I think also the way we take care of animals is very important. Um, we've kind of pushed all that out of our sight, out of mind, right? But it's not out of God's sight, and it's not out of God's mind. Uh, and I think you and I are responsible for how uh, we have utilized animals, how we take care of them, how we even eat them. Um, animals in the scriptures are like God's pets. God seems to really, really like them. Okay, Psalm 104, God feeds them, waters them. It seems like he kind of plays with them. right? I mean, the same way we have pets. It's kind of how God kind of views the animals. Okay, He has this active, kind of intimate relationship with them. Um, I don't know if you know this. In the Old Testament, God actually makes covenants with animals. In Hosea 2, there's a covenant God makes with animals. I mean, it just seems odd to us, right? It seems like that doesn't work very well, but, but there it is. There are all these laws in the Old Covenant about how you can and can't treat animals. God seems to be really invested in this. And I don't know if you've ever realized this. Um, Jonah, did you know the story of Jonah, right? He wants to go to, he's called to go preach to Nineveh, and he doesn't, and he gets upset at God because God uh, forgives them. Well, the very end of Jonah in chapter 4, when God is explaining why he forgave Nineveh, one of the reasons he lists is because of all the animals that were in Nineveh. I mean, I'd never really just thought about it. I just always read over it. It's actually the last word in Jonah 4. Jonah's all upset that God forgave Nineveh instead of destroying them. And, and God's kind of going back and going, how would you be upset that I had pity on a city of this many people? And then his ends, comma, and a lot of cattle. <laughs> I mean, God's like, this is on his radar when he's thinking about destroying the city. That's a lot of animals I would have to kill. And he didn't want to do that. That was one of the reasons he, he had desired to show them mercy. And that was one of the reasons he gave Jonah. That's just the last word of Jonah. And there's a ton of cattle there. I didn't, I didn't want to destroy all that. Um, so, so how we take care of animals. And I think you and I have this still inside of us, right? When stories like Michael Vick come out, you and I go, there's something in us that's aware, right? That, that we should be treating animals in a positive way. But perhaps uh, those are questions we need to ask ourselves. Again, I think if you file that under the category of liberal or not important, I don't think you've really followed me here. Um, I think this is more like a biblical worldview type thing that doesn't have to be liberal or conservative or anything like that, right? It's just a responsible asking questions of am I living um, the type of life that, that God has called me to live? Um, so first, creation care. Number two, the church is called a holiness. Okay, so I do think um, this idea of a new creation influences how you and I see and experience and pursue the act of being holy, being transformed in this world. A while back, we did a series called Virtue, um, and I think with the podcast is there for that, you can go listen to that. And the idea is a virtue is this kind of character trait that you build strength in because you'll need it in the future, because there's this end, this goal you're heading towards, Right. Well, you and I, again, we're going to be reigning on the new heavens and new earth, and we're going to need certain skills. We're going to need to be certain types of people to fully thrive in that environment. We're going to need to be people of faith and hope and love. We're going to need to be able to get along with each other. I mean, this is one of the reasons we, we, we're told to start practicing right now. This is one of the reasons why Christians, out of all people, 
right? You should be able to forgive each other. Because what are you going to do with a grudge on the new heaven and new earth when you're resurrected? How's that going to fit in this kind of life? It's not going to. You're going to it's going to be out of place. When you start learning how to be people who can forgive and who can love. When you start learning how to be people who worship and who are just head over heels in love with God. Again, if you're not a big fan of God, this is going to be a really uncomfortable environment for you. When God floods earth with his presence. I mean, if you're not actively seeking that right now and actively growing and being comfortable in God's presence and, and going to God's presence and, and inviting him into your life, you're just not going to be ready for that kind of experience. Right now, though, we, we build the muscles that we'll need to thrive in the future. Again, I, I think this kind of puts Christian holiness and transformation in its proper place. Why are we being transformed? To experience the life that God has for us in the future. And the life that we can start to experience now. But if you live your whole life and you don't pursue any of these things, and, and you manage to still be on the team, right? You, you've got some catching up to do. I mean, some serious things are going to have to happen before you can really thrive in this kind of, this kind of environment. But, but the reason we start to practice things now is because we, we know it's headed our way. We know it's in our future. Um, so the church called holiness. And then this third one, uh, we'll wrap it up here. The mission of the church. I think this is important for understanding the church's mission. So for a long time, the church has split evangelism and social justice. And you have this kind of tension between churches, even within churches, of do we focus on winning souls or do we focus on social justice issues, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, giving a voice to the voiceless, those kind of things. As if you had to choose one or the other. Well, understanding the importance that creation plays in God's project of redemption, I think, takes that divide and just collapses it. They're one and the same. They're working toward the same goal. The person who is winning souls, right, having people transformed and repenting, is doing the same work as the person who is clothing naked people and feeding hungry people and mourning with widows and taking care of orphans. It's the same thing. We're all working towards this salvation, this redemption of all of creation. It's one and it's the same. I think it also helps us understand a theology of vocation, of work. So please hear me, doctors and engineers and teachers and nurses and and office people and librarians and vets, none of those jobs are less significant than, say, like a missionary. Does that make sense? If, If really the only thing that mattered was saving souls, then you might think, yeah, I mean, what a lowly thing you're doing, right? I'm out here on the mission field sacrificing my life, saving souls, and you're over here trying to make people healthy? Right? You're over here trying to, to figure out how to use the gifts God's given us to further the world and, and help uh, humanity thrive more in the world. And then you see this kind of dichotomy there, and, and this is kind of devalued, and, and winning souls, right? Evangelism is, is valued. But understanding, again, I think God's hope for all of creation doesn't do that. Doctors have a role to play. Doctors need to be good doctors. And engineers need to be good engineers, and business people need to be good business people. We all have this role to play in God's creation. Luther um, is credited with saying this quote. We'll end with this. It's probably apocryphal to Luther. Um, it's been attributed to a whole bunch of people since Luther, but he's really the earliest that it ever gets attributed to. So the quote is this. Luther would say, If I thought the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. What do you think about that? If I thought the world was going to end tomorrow... I would plant a tree today. Now, if you think again of the end of the world being this big fire and brimstone destruction, right? 
and leaving, escaping, and, and forgetting all about this. That would make no sense. You're wasting your time. Plant a tree so it can be burned up the next day. I mean, why don't you go do something important? But if you think of God renewing creation, transforming it, then maybe your small but faithful act of transformation, of beauty, of life, will be taken up and used by God in his work of new creation. Do you see it? I mean, do you get that? If I, if I thought Jesus would come back tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. This is how Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 after this huge long cha- uh, chapter about the resurrection. He says at the very end, Therefore, brothers, know that your work for the Lord is not in vain. Know that the small but faithful things you do will be used up, will be taken by God, absorbed in his new creation, and will work for eternity. I mean, it's going to be exponentially kind of multiplied. The church is a mission. The church, the church should be faithful to that mission. When Jesus resurrects, I mean, here's what we've kind of been driving at this whole series. The entire world shifts. Everything's thrown off balance. A new energy and power, the Holy Spirit, it bursts in on creation in ways that had never been there before. Christians would say Jesus is the, the first thing, the first person to be created. In John, um, in, in John in the resurrection story, Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week after seven days throughout John's gospel, as if Jesus, uh, God is starting to create things again, and Jesus is the first one to be created again. I mean, John, Paul uses language in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Jesus is the first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead. He is made new. He is recreated. He is resurrected. And then you and I one day with him, when he returns, we resurrected. And then again, step back and see the whole biblical scope. Not only you and I, but the whole world will be transformed, renewed, released from its bondage to death and to evil. And God will be all in all. And his dwelling place will be with men. And we see all of that and more when we celebrate every Sunday the fact that Jesus was dead and he's risen. He's alive. Let's pray together.